All right, let's take the Word of God together this morning and turn to the book of Jude. The book of Jude. And this morning we will be looking at verses 14 through 19. Uh, Jude 14 through 19. And we will be thinking on the subject this morning or the title, Behold the Lord Cometh. Behold the Lord Cometh. Let's begin reading in verse number 14, and we will read down through verse number 19. The Word of God says, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of thee, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and all of their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts, and their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. But beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ how that they told you there should be mockers in the last time, who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. These be they who separate themselves, sensual, having not the Spirit. Let's look back together again at verse 14 and that expression, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. Behold, the Lord cometh. One of the grandest promises to every believer this morning is that phrase, Behold, the Lord cometh. That gives us hope today in a world in which we live in that seems to be without hope, without direction, without purpose. But for the believer, the coming of the Lord again is our blessed hope. It is our great anticipation. We're looking for his return because when he returns, he will set all things in order. He will make all things right. Today, there is not a shortage of things that are wrong. There is not a shortage in our world today that we can look around at nearly every side and say, this is wrong, this is wrong, that's not right, this is ungodly, this is not righteous, this is not holy. And yet, the phrase, behold, the Lord cometh, reminds us that there is still a holy God who is still in control. And yet, we as believers need to be reminded of this truth. I believe that most true believers are anticipating the Lord's return. That has not ended in the church yet. The modern church is still holding on to the truth that the Lord is coming again, but I sometimes fear that because it's not coming when we think it is, that maybe he's not coming again. Well, I can assure you this morning, he is coming again. He will come again at the appointed hour, at the appointed time. Some may say, how dark does it have to get before the Lord's had enough? We have to remember, God doesn't operate that way. God is not watching and watching and watching and saying, okay, that's enough. There's an appointed hour that's already been set that he's coming. He's not going to come one second sooner than what the Father has ordained. And yet we as believers are left in this world amongst scoffers, amongst those who we've learned about in our study of this book of Jude, those who have crept in unawares, those who've crept into the church, who've turned the grace of God into lasciviousness, 
who've denied the only Lord God and who have denied the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, we saw back in verse number five, Jude wrote, I put you in remembrance, though ye once knew it. The same concept comes along here as we begin looking at verses 14 through 19, and Jude makes reference to Enoch. Now, we are familiar with Enoch. Most times when you mention the name Enoch, people immediately say he walked with God. That's his quote-unquote claim to fame. We'll talk a little bit more about Enoch in just a moment. But the interesting thing about this particular expression is that verse 14 talks about a prophecy of Enoch. Now, we don't find a prophecy of Enoch in any part of Scripture. We don't find a place where it said that Enoch prophesied this, yet just like we saw back in verse number 9 with regard to the dispute over the body of Moses, we believe it because the Bible says it. Some commentators have said that this particular prophecy of Enoch was a tradition that was passed down from generation. But here's the position that we'll take on this this morning. It's in the inspired, infallible, and errant word of God, and we will take it as an authoritative statement. Enoch prophesied about this, Behold, the Lord cometh. That's his prophecy. Behold, look, the Lord cometh. Now, of course, he was not speaking in present tense right that moment because we know that today the Lord Jesus Christ has not yet come the second time. He's already come the first time. We've, we read about his birth this morning in our call to worship. But we do know that when he comes again, he's not coming again to go to a cross. He's not coming again to pay for man's sins. He is coming for his own. Yet we find that Christ also, when he comes again, he is coming to judge. We know that before the flood, the Lord came and he judged. But what a time it'll be if you and I are fortunate enough to still be on this earth to see the Lord cometh. What a glorious day that'll be. What an amazing thought to be here the day he comes again. But here's the promise and here's the wonderful truth this morning, that even if you're not here when he comes to this earth, if you die in Christ, you will already be in his presence. And to think about that today in the midst of a dark world is your greatest sense of hope today, that Christ is coming again. But notice in reference to this coming again, he says in verse 15 that one of the reasons he's coming is to execute judgment. Now, we read about judgment. We've been reading about judgment in our confession of faith. And here, Jude makes that statement. To execute judgment. Notice how many times in verse 15 the word ungodly is mentioned. To convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed. And all of all their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. There's something about this word ungodly. To be ungodly is to be without Christ. To be without God. Today, that language and the way we think about the word godly, we understand that to be godly is to have his righteousness. It is to have the righteousness of Christ. The judgment that is coming to be executed is told specifically here in the book of Jude to those who we have been reading about and preaching about and studying about, these false prophets. 
who came into the church under the name, under the guile, under the guise of godliness, yet Jude calls them out. He says they're not godly, they're ungodly. And the judgment that's coming is coming as a result of their ungodliness. Now again, we see that Enoch, it's referred to as being the seventh from Adam. The seventh from Adam. Now let's, let's learn just a little bit about Enoch. We know that Enoch was the son of Jared. Again, he's, his claim to fame, I don't mean irreverence by that, but his claim to our understanding is that he walked with God, but he was also translated or taken to heaven, and he did not experience death. We're told about this in Genesis chapter 5. Let's go back and look at this this morning because this will help us just get a, a greater picture of the, the, the character of Enoch in Genesis 5, verse number 18. The Bible tells us about the descendants of Jared, and you'll see that Enoch is the descendant, one of the descendants that is pointed out. It says in Genesis 5, verse 18, And Jared lived 160 and two years, and he begat Enoch. And Jared lived after he begat Enoch 800 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Jared were 960 and two years, and he died. And Enoch lived 60 and five years and begat Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were 360 and five years. And Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Now we see that expression that God took him as a reference to his translation. He did not experience death in the way that you and I are going to experience death if the Lord hastens his return. However, it tells us that he was a man who walked with God. To walk with God is not just in theological terms and it's not just in our doctrine. Those are important, but he walked with God in an experimental way. In other words, it is the evidence, don't miss this, of true godliness. You see, the godly will walk with God. The godly will walk with God, not just in doctrine, not just in theology, but practically, experientially, they will experience God. Enoch experienced God. In his daily life, Enoch realized that God was with him. He regarded God as a living God. He loved God. Enoch, we see, had a family of his own. He begat sons and daughters. And yet we understand that in all of this, Enoch walked with God. We might say today that Enoch, as we look upon the landscape of our society, we could say this about Enoch, that Enoch was very much a man with a family, and that man with a family walked with God. Now, why is that important? Because Enoch is mentioned in direct opposition to the ungodly. Enoch is given as an example of godliness right before we're told about the ungodly. You see, the ungodly do not walk with God. The ungodly do not have a relationship with God. They do not have an experiential knowledge of God. And as a result, their theology and their doctrine is wrong. We say it a lot around here. You can have your doctrine and your theology wrong, but if your walk 
is, if your walk is wrong, then your theology and your doctrine have to be put to the question. A theology and a doctrine that only leads you to have a head knowledge, but not experiential knowledge, is not true doctrine at all. So what Enoch shows us is the picture of godliness. So evidently, this prophecy of Enoch, again, maybe it was handed down from age to age, from generation to generation, but Jude refers to it, and because it's in the Word of God, then we know the Holy Spirit has inspired His Word, and this is to be taken as sound and solid truth. And he says, behold, the Lord Jesus will come again. Not the coming to seek and to save, but the coming to judge. His second coming is going to show forth his glory and show forth his majesty. And while he's doing that and carrying out judgment, the wonderful promise that you and I have, those who are in Christ, he is going to gather together his elect and mark for final judgment those who are ungodly. Now the marking of the Lord, we'll, talk, we'll see a little bit about this this morning, the marking of the Lord is his divine prerogative. You and I can mark the ungodly all we want to do. We can, try to do. we can try to say and declare that person's ungodly, that person is unrighteous, that person's outside of Christ, that person's not. Or we can say, listen, the Bible teaches us that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one that's going to make the mark of who's in Christ. That gives us hope this morning because we know that the Lord will not get it wrong. Well, let's turn over to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, and let's look at the the account of the ascension of Christ. And this is an important aspect of, of why we believe what we believe. But we see in Acts chapter number one, it begins in verse number nine and it goes down into verse number 11. The Bible says, and when he had spoken these things while they beheld, that's the word look, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? Now notice this. This same Jesus, this same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. This same Jesus, the same Jesus who came to seek and to save that which is lost is the same Jesus who's coming back to judge and mark the ungodly. We understand that the principle here of these, this event, we're looking up, they're watching him go into heaven and maybe they're looking with some sort of doubt. It doesn't tell us, but he says, why do you stand gazing? He says, have comfort, have hope. This same Jesus that you're seeing ascended, he's coming again in the same manner which you've seen him go. And the question for us this morning is, do we really believe that? Do we really believe that this same Jesus or do we somehow think along the way Jesus is going to change his personality and it's a different Jesus coming than the one who came? No, it's the same Jesus. You see, the same Jesus who came to seek and save that which is lost is the same Jesus who comes and pronounces judgment on those that are without him. 
It's not a different Jesus. It's not an updated version. It's not a changed version of him. It's the same Jesus. We also are told over in 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4, I think it's important to make much of this. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 through 18. Now again, verses are oftentimes used to back up someone's religious thought. I'll just leave it with that. But I want you to pay closer attention to the promises here, not to back up your religious thought. And you'll see what I mean here in just a moment. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16, or verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord." Now that phrase right there, just stop and think on it. Forever with the Lord. Notice Paul's intention of saying this. Right, verse 18. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Behold, the Lord cometh, and when he comes, we shall forever be with the Lord. I don't care where your eschatology is, your end times theology is. The great comfort in that is knowing that for the believer, the godly, those that are in Christ, we shall forever be with the Lord. That's the comfort and the hope of Jesus. Now he says, Jude tells us all of these things to give hope to the believer, but also to give a warning to the non-believer, to the ungodly. Back in Jude, it tells us to execute judgment upon all. Make no mistake about it, the righteous judgment of God will fall upon all men, not only for their ungodly deeds, but also for the words in which they spoke against him. When you hear someone today speak against the Lord Jesus Christ, it is not a light thing. When you hear someone today deny the Lord Jesus Christ, or as we've learned, who turned the grace of God into lasciviousness, or turned God into something that is only about our pleasure, you have turned God into something He is not, and there is a judgment coming against those that will speak against the God of the Bible. Man may say, it's my, it's my, my right, my liberty to speak my mind. Certainly, sir, certainly, ma'am, it is. But when you speak against the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a promise of judgment that will come upon you. There's no getting around that. But this reference here, again, remember the context of Jude, is specifically towards these false teachers. Men who came in, who spoke against the person of Christ, who spoke against his offices, they spoke against his blood, they spoke against his righteousness, and they spoke against his ministers and the people. The Bible tells us that the wicked will be separated from the godly. 
The godly will be marked out from the ungodly. There is coming a reckoning day when Jesus Christ himself will mark those that are his and those who are not his. If you'll turn to the New Testament book of Matthew 25, Matthew 25, and let's look at verse 31. Matthew 25, verse 31. This is the passage of Scripture that is oftentimes referred to simply as the separation of the sheep and the goats. If you've been around here any amount of time, you realize that we believe that the Bible teaches that a goat does not become a sheep and sheep never become goats. In other words, you were not once a goat who became a sheep or you're not a sheep today and you're becoming a goat. We understand how the Lord has worked in eternity past. But we also understand that the Bible tells us that when the Lord comes, verse 31, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory and before him shall be gathered all nations. And he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked and ye clothed me, I was sick and ye visited me, I was in prison and ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when, when saw we thee hungered and fed thee, or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in, or naked or clo and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick or in prison and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was a hungered, and ye gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me not in. Naked, and ye clothed me not. Sick, and in prison, and ye visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee a hungered, or a thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. There is a day of separation coming. There are many today who claim, I am of the godly, who the Bible clearly declares that Jesus himself will say, you are not mine. Again, for the believer, those are great words of hope, knowing that one day all will be made right. These false teachers in the book of Jude, we've been studying about these false teachers. They are referred to as ungodly ungodly deeds, ungodly things they've committed, ungodly sinners. They're described further in Jude 16. These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lust. That's the direct opposite of walking with God, by the way. To walk after your own lust is not to walk with God. Their mouth speaketh great swelling words. And here's the whole reason why they do what they do having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. Their whole purpose is to take advantage of the believer. 
to take advantage of those who are in Christ. They are troublemakers. They are there for their own self-will. They don't rest in Christ. They don't rest in his sovereignty. They don't rest in the providence of God. They have no desire to acknowledge, behold, the Lord cometh. They don't care. We have this idea that the ungodly are walking around this world afraid when Jesus Christ comes again. Most are living in open and defiant rebellion against him and said, I don't care if the Lord comes or not. You see, the godly understand that his coming is, yes, a glorious time and the fulfillment of the promises will forever be with the Lord, but it's also a time of great judgment when those false professors, not just the ones that got into the church in Jude, not just these, but those who've been sitting in churches all their life, who've been nothing but false professors, while sitting there denying the Lord Jesus Christ, they will be marked for his judgment. And again, we don't say that with any kind of, of, of pride It ought to be like Jude takes it. It ought to grieve us to the heart that somebody would say, I find no hope in Christ. And yet, sometimes we get wrapped up in the idea that we were not once murmurers and complainers. That had it not been for the salvation of the Lord, we would be one of those goats. When you take credit for your own, your own merit and your own worthiness and your own work, that that's why you're one of his sheep, you misunderstand Scripture. You're one of his sheep because he chose you. And again, don't come and look yourself in the mirror and say, God got a good one. No, God got the worst of the worst. He got the bottom of the barrel. Every one of us is not worthy to be called one of his own. We're not called, we're not worthy to even say, listen, behold, the Lord cometh because I'm so good. No, it's because we are so wicked and depraved and vile. And yet in his providential sovereign hand, he saw fit to save us for his glory. Again, these doctrines do not fill any man who understands with pride. It brings him to his knees in humility and says, why would God do such a thing? Why did he not leave me as one of the ungodly? Yet Jude wants us to understand, and he reminds us in verses 17 through 19, keep yourself in what you know, the love of God. Jude addresses now the true believers who might be disturbed by what's going on. It would be disturbing to us today if we knew that amongst us in our congregation that men like this were in our midst. We could live in fear and say, listen, before any person walks through the door, we need to vet them and make sure they're not one of these false teachers. We need to give them the complete uh, rundown and live in fear. Or we can say, remember the words which were spoken. Now, again, we ought to be on guard and we've learned that. We've learned that we are to be on guard for any hint of false doctrine. And no false doctrine is acceptable in this congregation. It should never be allowed that even something that just twists a truth just slightly should be allowed. But he says, beloved, the godly in opposite of the ungodly, remember the words. You see, I can't promise you today that something bad will not happen, earthly speaking. I can't tell any one of you today, look, 
you're not going to have anything bad happen to you today, tomorrow, next week, or for the next 10 years. I can't promise you that physically, but I can promise you on the authority of the word of God that if you are in Christ Jesus today, there is a greater day coming and there is a day when Jesus Christ is going to come and he is going to set all things right. And if you are in him, you have all hope today. You know, most of our situations when we need counsel, we just need to be reminded. Remember what you already have been taught. Remember what you already know. You don't need some new promise of an easier life. You just need a reminder of the goodness of God towards you already. You see, Jude is addressing now the true believers. And for the rest of this chapter, for the most part, he turns now away from the false teachers and said, listen, we've said all we're going to say about them. Now, beloved, build yourself up and remember the words. Remember the words of the apostles, he says. The apostles, we know, they told many things. One of the things that they told us that in the last days, there would be scoffers. There would be mockers. There would be false preachers. Folks, when you turn on the, on the television or you log on to the internet and you see a false preacher on there, do not be alarmed like it was unthought of. You say they are multiplying. They are multiplying. False teachers are standing in front of congregations today at an alarming rate. Churches that once stood for the truth have a false teacher standing amongst them, guiding them through something that is not Scripture. And yet, we should not be surprised. In 2 Peter 3, if you want to turn there this morning, those of you that are following the McShane reading uh, plan, you're reading this right now. I love how the Lord works these things out. Because this isn't planned. And yet, here we, we are sitting here, and here's the, here is what Peter writes. Verse 3, 2 Peter 3. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly, notice this, willingly are ignorant, willingly ignorant of that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering. And do not miss this. This verse gets quoted so many times out of context. Suffering to usward. To usward. Not willing that any should perish. Any of the us shall not perish, 
but that all should come to repentance. All of the us's shall be saved. This is not a declaration that every single person in the world can take this promise and say, God is going to wait till every single person comes to repentance and comes unto him. That's the exact opposite of what Peter meant. But you who are in Christ, you who are of the elect, you who are of the choice of God, not by your own merit, not by your own goodness, not by your own wisdom, but you that are chosen of God, he is not slack concerning his promise. The promise of what? That one day he's coming again. But that all should come to repentance. The Lord has his sheep still today who have not fully come to repentance yet. There was a day in your life you came to repentance. If you're in Christ, there was a day of repentance. If there wasn't, then you need to repent today. Repent of your sins and trust in Christ alone. Believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is not an automatic flip the switch. You're in Christ. You must be brought to repentance. And it's through the preaching of the word of God that brings the sinner to repentance. That's why we preach so much here. Not because I want to entertain you, but because we are called to preach the gospel of repentance so that all of God's children, all of his elect, will be brought to repentance. And the day that that final one comes to repentance, he's coming again. But the ungodly says, where's the promise of his coming? The one who has no interest in Christ says he's not coming. I have a hundred years and he still won't come. Yet make no mistake about it, he's, he is not slack concerning his promises. When he comes again, he will come again. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein, notice the works that are therein, shall be burned up. All of man's works that he thought, this gets me to God, will burn up. If you have anything today you think is keeping you in God or got you in God, it's going to burn up. Your best works on your best day is not enough to put you in the body of Christ. Your best works on your best day every day, 365, 24 hours a day for 100 years. If you did good, all good things are 100 years, which is impossible. But if you did, you still wouldn't have the righteousness to be in Christ. Let that sink in for a minute. Man's works will burn up. And yet, to those that are in Christ, there's the promise and the comfort that comes in knowing he's coming again. Back to the final verse of Jude we'll look at this morning, Jude 19. It tells us again about them. Verse 18, how that they told you there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lust. These be they, here's the key, who separate themselves. You see, salvation is of the Lord, but man is responsible for his own damnation. One of the great mysteries of God Yet the Bible says these men who are ungodly, these men who are not in Christ, these goats separate themselves. They're sensual. To be sensual means to walk after your own lusts. Not walk after God. Not walk with God. They are walking for themselves. And why does a man walk for himself? Here's the answer. 
having not the Spirit. Without the Spirit of God, you and I do absolutely nothing good. We're going to learn in the gospel service today about abiding in Christ. And to abide in Christ, he says these words, without me, you can do nothing. Not a thing. You say, but I'm a talented guy. I'm a talented woman. You can't do anything without him. And to have him is to have the spirit. You could bring up the smartest, most intelligent man who's ever walked the face of the earth to stand up behind this pulpit and to try to teach you the Bible without the spirit. He will do nothing but read words on a page. He'll have no indication of what the Bible's actually teaching. He will not know. These ungodly people who got into these churches, they know not God because they don't have the Spirit. When you ask a person about their profession of faith and their salvation, it is not about when did you pray? When did you walk an aisle? When did you give your heart to Jesus? It is when the Holy Spirit took possession of you and is in you now. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. And only then that we can produce anything for God. And even that, it's not us producing the work. It's the Holy Spirit of God producing the work. These people are nothing more than those who've come in to cause division, to cause strife. They're sensual. They're natural men. They profess to know Christ, but they've never been regenerated and they've never been made partakers of the Holy Spirit of God. They are false. Romans 8 verse 12 tells us, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh, but for if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Notice that. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Someone might say, who are the children and sons of God? The answer would be what? Those that are led by the Spirit of God. Not those that just pray to prayer, but those who are led by the Spirit of God. Those are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. You're not a child of God because I tell you you're a child of God. You're a child of God because the Holy Spirit tells you that. What I tell you, folks, matters nothing. You don't take the preacher's word to say you're saved. No, the Holy Spirit tells you that. He said, the Holy Spirit's not telling me I'm one of His. Repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. This instant, now. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And we, sometimes we get to the end of this verse and we stop there and we don't like the next part. If so be that we suffer with him. You know, actually being one of the sheep, one of his, may lead to extreme suffering. Yet he says this, but that we may also be glorified together. Suffering is only for a moment. Glory is for eternity. Now, when you're going through the suffering, it doesn't feel so good. But when you're going through the glory that is to come, the suffering will seem as if it never happened. 
You say it's easy to say that when you're not suffering. Absolutely, that's why we all need to be reminded because there's a day of suffering most likely coming for all of us. And yet our hope is not in what we can, what we can prevent. Our hope is in he who has drawn us unto himself. From the uh, Bible study notes, one of the Bibles, I, one of the notes that I use, it says, it is the habit of Antichrist to separate themselves from the godly because they are not governed by the Spirit of God. And it is the habit of believers, or on the contrary, it is the habit of believers to edify one another through prayers, both in faith and in love, until the mercy of Christ appears to their full salvation. False teachers are to expect the judgment of God. They've been declared, they've been promised from the foundation of the world that they would come. We're told to avoid them. We're told to mark them. And you and I are only to follow a man or a woman for that matter, whatever the case is. It could be various cases here, but we're only to follow those as they follow Christ. If a man does not follow Christ, do not follow him. You get out of there. I've said this repeatedly, I'll say it again. If there ever comes a place, heaven forbid it ever happens, that I stop following Christ, you get me out of here. And you do it quickly. You understand what I'm saying. A man that will not follow Christ intentionally swerves. Okay? He didn't, he didn't stumble into it. He didn't fall away. He was never one to begin with. Those that are in Christ, we have the hope and the promise of behold, the Lord cometh. Let's stand together if you would. I'm going to conclude us with our benediction for this hour with our reading from the Valley of Vision. And this one is appropriately entitled The Second Coming. O Son of God and Son of Man, Thou wast incarnate, did suffer, rise, ascend for my sake. Thy departure was not a token of separation, but a pledge of return. Thy word, promises, sacraments show thy death until thou come again. That day is no horror to me, for thy death has redeemed me. Thy spirit fills me. Thy love animates me. Thy word governs me. I have trusted thee, and thou hast not betrayed my trust, waited for thee, and not waited in vain. Thou will come to raise my body from the dust and reunite it to my soul by a wonderful work of infinite power and love, greater than that which bounds the ocean's waters, ebbs and flows the tides, keeps the stars in their courses, and gives life to all creatures. This corruptible shall put on incorruption, this mortal immortality, this natural body a spiritual body, this dishonored body a glorious body, this weak body, a body of power. I triumph now in thy promises as I shall do in their performance. For the head cannot live if the members are dead. Beyond the grave is resurrection, judgment, acquittal, dominion. Every event and circumstance of my life will be dealt with. The sins of my youth, my secret sins, the sins of abusing thee, of disobeying thy word, the sins of neglecting ministers' admonitions, the sins of violating my conscience, all will be judged. And after judgment, peace and rest, life and service, employment and enjoyment for thine elect. 
Oh God, keep me in this faith and ever looking for Christ's return. Father, we love you this morning and we thank you for the very simple but stirring promise of behold, the Lord cometh. Lord, may we not soon, may we not soon forget this truth. May it be our guiding hope in this world as believers as we see the world fall around us. We see the rise of scoffers. We see the rise of false teachers and preachers. May we not be alarmed, but rather may we be reminded of the great hope in the return of our Savior. Father, we give all this time and all of this, all of what we have to offer, as, as futile as it may be, Lord, we give it unto you to be used as you see fit. Lord, thank you for saving us. And Lord, if there be again someone here today, one of your own who has yet to repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, may today be that glorious day. We thank you and praise you for all these things. And it's in Christ's name and for his sake I do pray, amen.